Bootstrapping your business can sometimes feel lonely. Welcome to the Bootstrapped European Entrepreneur Podcast, where you can hear the stories of your peers, as well as the strategies and tactics that have helped them grow their businesses. Your host, Uroj, co-founded a company as a student and led it through the trials and tribulations of bootstrapping to the IPO on the stock exchange. Hi, our guest today is Andrei Merkel. He is the co-founder of DataLab, a publicly traded company and the leading ERP provider in Southeastern Europe, present in nine different countries. In this episode, we talk about how the failure of his first company and his personal bankruptcy served as an inspiration for the idea of DataLab, how he used frequent changes in the law to drive the company's growth, and how partnerships enabled the company to grow even faster. Unfortunately, at the beginning of the episode, we had a problem with the microphone, so the sound is not as good as I would like. Despite that, I hope you will enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, Andre. Welcome to our broadcast. Hi, Rush. Thanks for inviting me, for having me. I'm really excited to host you uh, because you're one of the first, let's say, entrepreneurs uh, in Slovenia that actually sold computers. Uh, You're also one of the first that went international with his company. And you're definitely the first who did an IPO on any stock exchange with DataLab. So where did the story of DataLab actually begin? So the story of DataLab began in, I would say, 95. Um, when we started, so I had my, my uh, company before that. Uh, we were assembling computers and uh, um, doing large, uh, large scale distribution of uh, memory modules and we're quite successful. Um, but what we did not have was uh, a, a software or a program that would help us run that company. So we started thinking and thinking about how to write a program for us. In the meantime, the company went bankrupt because of the, we were a bit surprised, uh, we speculated that the, um, the memory modules will not be available like they weren't last year. So we made a huge stock. And when we loaded that in Hong Kong, the price dropped for uh, at, at about a half to about a half. And uh, basically that was um, so much loss that the company could not uh, handle that. And we needed to sell. So we sold the company. Unfortunately, we're uh, being played fools. So all the liabilities stayed, and uh, I was facing facing quite a desperate uh, bankruptcy um, as a private person as well. So um, all those pressures actually got me thinking about what to do. I wanted to stay in computers. I, I always was a programmer. Um, so we started toying, toying about making a company and software that would actually help uh, other entrepreneurs to not to bankrupt uh, and to transform that their data that was that we knew it was there into profit. And so DataLab was born, the, the company logo was born, and our mission was born, basically helping entrepreneurs. 
what do you mean by the program? Let's say so you actually lack data on how the company was doing. Let's say in your first. Oh yes, there. there um, if you if we look back at the nineties, the the biggest problem was actually were most of the programs were still written in Clipper, so they could not process large uh, data sets, even. For today's terms, it would be insignificant data sets, but for example, a million records were a huge problem uh, with speed by the programs then. Um, so it was basic material uh, management and, and warehouse management that, that was lacking. Then uh, there was no software that would help you uh, track the warranty claims that were a, a big cash burner in the, in, in the Harvard business. Um, let's not speak about the proper balance sheets, the, the cash flow statements and everything else that you need to, to, to steer the company. If I understand correctly, let's say, so you had a really bad experience. You, if I also, let's say, implicitly heard that you didn't have like finance background at the time. You got to remember, we're, we're talking about Eastern Europe. Let's say it was the first generation of entrepreneurs. We knew how to make computers. We knew how to drill something or sell something. But we had absolutely no idea about what running a business is like. So we were lacking all those um, skills that our counterparts inherently had from the, from the moment that they were born. And so it was... Uh, it was building up companies and learning entrepreneurship and learning business and learning finance, learning tax. That was the situation where most of the entrepreneurs in the early 90s were and actually still, still are. Yeah. So the vision for your product, let's say, uh, what is called? It's called Pantheon, yeah? Pantheon, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the vision was, uh, let's say, to get something useful from the data. If I understood you correctly, but how did you, let's say, then sell this vision to the market? Because most of the company had some kind of accounting uh, software in place, let's say. So in my experience, this is one of the stuff that usually people think that it's really hard to switch, let's say. So these uh, switching costs are quite high. How did you then uh, address the market? We did a couple of, of first things. Again, if we look at the landscape, you had the invoicing programs, and that was a separate program. Then you maybe have material management and warehouse, which could be the same program or could be also a different one. But it was a definite detachment between the, the invoicing and, and accounting. You had uh, basically the most uh, uh, rudimentary uh, accounting software then that allowed you just post to account on a date. The first inventions that, that we had is we said, okay, material management and accounting has to be linked. And everything we do in the in the material management should be automatically transferred to 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 the accounting. There was a couple of inventions and fortunately not patentable or fortunately not patentable. Um, the first one was how the uh, the, the, the so-called um, matrix six of the accounting, where we have uh, hacked how basically the accountant mind is working, and we put um, that knowledge into some matrices, so that when you did the an invoice, either an incoming invoice or a, a customer invoice, 
this would be automatically uh, booked to the accounting. So this, this was time-saving uh, feature, let's say, of the software? Time-saving and synchronization. Basically, in the monthly balance sheets were unheard of. So usually you had a three-month lag between you issued the invoices and you see the, the impact of issuing of that invoice in your general ledger. With the, with the automatic posting, we close that to zero. Okay, so how did you finance, let's say, this development at the beginning? Because you said we were, let's say, almost bankrupt. Well, I was bankrupt. Oh, you were bankrupt. <laughs> I remember vividly for a month I was really counting my, my, my coins and thinking about if I could uh, got two yogurts and one piece of bread or shall I today eat uh, one yogurt and two pieces of bread. Well, okay. the glory passed. Um, <laughs> now I, I would definitely not like to be in that position uh, again. But the, how did they finance that? that? That's a good question. So the thing is, we were extremely fast with the first version. So it only took us, I think, two or three months to do the, the first version of the software. And uh, that was financed with what I had left on my bank account before the bankruptcy really kicked in. And um, after that one, we sold sold software and then charged for maintenance. And basically that kept the, the... the programmer, my friend Tomasz, that was that had joined me then, um, that kept him fed. So whatever we, we earned went into his paycheck. I was living on fumes, selling some stuff that I had to to keep me fed and on the road. So gas was, I think, was the biggest expense that I had those days. This was then ninety-seven, ninety-eight. We quickly re- very quickly reached 100 clients okay um and that gave us the base then to really start preparing for the upcoming vat transition that meant changing every software in slovenia so who was the your who were the, your first clients were the entrepreneurs uh, let's say owners of the business or the accounting houses no owners of the business Accounting houses are extremely conservative, so they did not start coming until, I'd say, early 2000 or early 99, something like this. No, these were these were these were business owners, and these were usually the toughest business owners because um, that really had some tough requirements that their existing software could not uh, handle for them. So the software you developed in three months, uh, let's say, you actually went and sold it to the let's say. To the larger businesses, not to the smaller, smaller ones. Not to the smaller businesses. Uh-huh. Our typical client was, I, I don't know, five to twenty people employed. Uh huh. Okay. So, and this then financed, let's say, your developer, not you, at the beginning. And then the, you mentioned that uh, the transition to a VAT system happened. Yes. When this transition was coming, we had, I don't know, two hundred clients or hundred and fifty clients, something like that. Then generated enough cash flow that we could employ another programmer and um, also a sales guy and then later a support person, which then uh, started generating cash.
So, if I heard correctly, you were still the only salesperson in the company at the time. But uh, let's see, how, when did the, the transition to scaling your sales happen? And what was like uh, a catalyst to scaling the sales? Well, basically, I was doing everything from, from uh, programming to documentation writing, supporting, selling. Um, the, I, I think that in the early 98, we got the first... Uh, we got the first salesman and also started to scale then with the support. The, what the reason was for scaling, we were quite successful with uh, acquiring new clients. Ours was the first Windows program that was native Windows. And that was something that was uh, quite important then. We were the first one that had a database server. So no uh, flat file database, but a, a SQL server that you could really load with with uh, amounts of data and it would still run and those two combination um, actually uh, brought a lot of attention of uh, of the entrepreneurs to our software and um, they were quite uh, quick to onboard and to, so we we had a good a good sales experience uh, from day one and for scaling, uh, basically, we could not handle the volume with the amount of people that we had. So we needed to start scaling. But you then changed this approach to, let's say, to develop partnership channel. Yeah, we were so we were so successful in um, in that VAT transition in the '99 that we basically grew, I think, to 25 people within two years. So from three to 25 within two years and uh, we had our support and sales centers in Ljubljana, Maribor and Koper, which went, um, they were t- uh, geographically apart and um, managing geographically spread company was a problem. Most of the customers were new customers. So still in the implementation or um, learning phase and, uh, and that created huge uh, pressure towards our service desk. And when you are a software company, you always, you always have to watch very closely where your direction is. Are you developing stuff that would save your problems with a certain client? Or are you developing a product, your product for the future? We could speak hours about uh, setting up barriers and, and and how to make sure that only the smart updates would come to the to the uh, to the core of the code base and not uh, some uh, crazy adaptation that that a client needs. So it was it was um, mostly it was a question of focus. What what are we going to be? Are we going to be a service company that really knows their client intimately and uh, does everything according to his wishes, or are we going to be a kind of Microsoft, you know, a software factory that has their products and then the people can use them and and configure them? My heart was going. To, to that side also, my mind was going to that side because I knew that you can only make money in IT if you scale your solution. So we basically sold off our uh, implement uh, our offices in Ljubljana, Koper and Maribor to the 
managers of, of those points. And so we created the first partner companies. Oh, this, this is quite an innovative idea, let's say. So you basically split the company, yep. but you didn't retain the ownership. No, we did not retain the ownership. With ownership uh, come capital requirements, and capital was something that we were still running on fumes. Or, uh, let's be frank, uh, every euro we earned, uh, I reinvested into into development and for 20-something years. So the first partners were actually employees, uh, let's say. Yeah. Uh, uh, what then, let's say, how did you then scale this partner network, uh, partnership network, was it hard to find uh, the first outside partner? No, actually not. By, by, by that time, we had so much traction and we were already perceived being a, a leader uh, on the ERP market here. Um, so we had uh, quite some uh, programmers that were doing their own solution, had maybe 50 clients and were unable to, to do either the VAT transition or the Windows transition or the transition to the client-server architecture. And so we set up a program called PFC, Partner from Competitor. And we were basically uh, approaching our competitors, talking with them, look, we are, we're having 10 developers and can hardly keep up with this crazy government changing laws every 14 days. It must be so much harder to you. Uh, why don't you just join us? Uh, because your key competencies are actually knowing your clients and implementing uh, solutions, not not the pure code development. And quite some listened uh, and joined us. I think we did over 50 oh. um, M&As of this kind. So the idea was, let's say, to give up some of the revenue, but uh, let's say to be able to scale much faster in this way. Yeah, we 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 gave out a lot of revenue. What's a lot, if you can share, let's say? Roughly half. Roughly half. Oh, so if we're then talking about profits, probably <laughs> more than half of the profits. That was also the problem for uh, that that later led into the demise of that system. When you have access to this much money flowing in you become complacent and um, most of our partners got so much clients and 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 work with them that they stopped acquisition of new clients and there was not a drive anymore okay they, they did not have the drive yeah so we need to fix that we needed to then put also a corrector on the market because uh, it became supporting Pantheon, became close to monopoly. And um, there were issues and practices that we, as, as Data Lab, did not like. Um, overcharging clients, um, et cetera, et cetera. So in, in 2009, yeah, after the crisis, we start turning the pendulum, so from going 100% partners, from moving 100% ourselves to 100% partners, we're now coming to, to, to something where I would say 30 to 40% of our sales is done within the house and also 
roughly that much uh, support is also done in-house. We started building our sales departments and support departments again. Probably this also means that uh, you have better access to the client needs and maybe, let's say, faster implementation time of some of the requests or something like that. You have better feel of the market or not. That's definitely something that we were that we were missing when we were going 100% indirect over partners. Also, the importance of some issues has been obfuscated. It was quite frequent that the partner was actually solving their own problem in implementation through some software changes and not the actual um, problem of the client. Yeah. Okay, let, let's go back. Let's say, so you mentioned in two years after, let's say, at the start, uh, you were scaling really fast. Uh, there were more than 20 people. Uh, a lot of work, let's say, you barely managed. And then a year later, uh, <laughs> you went international. How so? If you are barely coping with the amount of, uh, let's say, business in uh, Slovenia. Well, if you, if there are really few businesses that you can make and, and, and scale in Slovenia. I don't know, maybe Burek uh, or, or something <laughs> like this, fitness or, but otherwise, uh, Slovenia is just too small of a market. From day one, we knew that we will not be able to, to work only in Slovenia, that we will have to go international, which in the case of an ERP company means uh, a huge load of headaches that, that you're getting, especially if you're operating in, in, in uh, Southeast Europe. Uh, and that was also one of the reasons for going indirect in Slovenia. So we we lost the implementation and sales. We, we spin out the sales and implementation business in order to, to get the focus and to get also the, the finances to start our international operation. One year after Slovenia, uh, Croatia uh, made the transition to the VAT. And we were able to, to repeat the success story that we had in Slovenia, um, also in Croatia. And Croatia was actually a much, much bigger market. In Slovenia, you were personally known. You had some personal connections probably in the beginning. How did you then scale in another country, let's say, neighboring country? Uh, joint venture. Joint venture? Yeah. Ah, so you got some, some, some local CEO probably then? Who was also uh, yeah we got a local company that that knew what what we're doing that had some footprint in the local market and that's how we opened and uh, because we were not very cash rich company that was the only way how we could uh, uh, start moving internationally uh, was through some joint ventures where we where we were basically the the local partner brought the, the knowledge of the market, uh, local finances, and uh, some of the, uh, well, at least the, the, the capital afford to, to kickstart the marketing, while Datalab brought the software and skills on how to set up the, the structure. So what was the structure of this joint venture, like 50-50 partnership? Or? In the beginning, they all, all were 50-50, yeah. And then because of the hanged uh, majority. But is this quite hard to manage? Because it was hard to manage. We went then to 51-49. And then 10 years later, we, we basically bought uh, the full shares in, in, in the daughter companies. So except Montenegro and Bulgaria that have been completely sp spin-outed. 
and Corsa, which is still joint venture, all the rest is 100% owned by Datalab. Was this connected uh, with the IPO, let's say, uh, with the idea of IPO, uh, so consolidation of ownership? No, it was more it was more management issues and um, and the difference in what we plan to achieve. When you have a local partner or we, when you have a joint venture, he'd be interested in the dividend and the mother company would probably be interested in growth. And that are quite colliding interests. Yeah. Okay. But what's the story behind the IPO? Let's say I know you you are the first entrepreneur in Slovenia, let's say, who did an IPO, but the size of the company was still quite small. If I... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, not only the first IPO, we were the first company in Slovenia that actually had employee uh, stock ownership. Um, we did that from, so in 2003, we were established as uh, we transformed into a stock company from a limited liability uh, because we have already seen that there is going to be value that is going to be generated by Datalab. And I wanted to have the people that helped us come to the, to the position we are. Uh, I want it to have them um, rewarded for, for their work. So the, the, the proper thing to, to, to do was uh, employee stock ownership, ownership plan. So when we, we already had 50 plus shareholders uh, done and um, the situation seemed right. You, you remember how it was in the 2000s with the dot-com boom when people got the appetite for investing in technology. Then... Um, we were way too small then for doing anything. Then it was the, the crash, then 2004 to 2006, everything, everything starts blooming again. Yes. And there was so, so much money in, in, in the, um, on the market. And we were constantly being approached, um, why don't you do something? Why don't you, do, why don't you take cash? Uh, uh, in, why don't you take some investment? Um, and we had the the appetite to grow. We wanted to increase this MA procedure that we that we had started. Italy uh, has long been a dream market for us. Uh, we wanted to to, to open Italy. Uh, that would probably makes make a times 20 uh, size out of us so we, we wanted this there, there was a lot of money there was uh, overheat wherever you went so the bankers were much like it is today uh we're trying to shuffle shuffle money uh, into you so we said okay let's let's do let's do an ipo it will help us with the uh, employees stock holdings it will help us raise money it we will be able to to use our stock uh, to buy and consolidate uh, competition. Um, so it seemed a good idea. And basically, we did the IPO without any sales advi advisor, even the, the investment bank support there was minimal because we had everything ready. We, had, we were doing annual reports since 2003. 
uh, we were doing a very high level of accounting um, even there. So not much traditional cost and, and headache in, in going public. Yeah. And so we did. So the point of no return was April 2008. And in April 2008, we had a stock share projection that, that we will grow roughly 30% after opening and that would then create you know this self-fulfilling prophecy where you have a rising share that um, make you interesting for other companies to exit through you to do the mergers and uh, i would say that with some help or with some yeah with some help of the slovene financial players then we could have done a much different story but it was 2008, and then the Lehman Brothers happened. That was 2008. So we listed in uh, June 30th, 2008. We, we listed on the stock exchange. We knew that the July, August are going to be slow. Yes. But we had plans and also agreements with um, several of the players what we wanted to do and how they they could support us and earn in the process. Um, everybody knows the history, uh, September 21st. So you, you, you start feeling trembles in the market, I would say late July, especially in Slovenia. And then in December, Slovenia, Slovenian, uh, markets came crashing down. So that was the welcome package. And bad timing. Okay. But, uh, let's say the company still managed to grow, uh, let's say later on, but, uh, you didn't have the option to implement this much more aggressive plan. Uh, so what's the size of the company right now? So we're doing roughly 12 million uh, euros uh, as, uh, the, as the data lab group. And there's some 20 million probably outside services that, that are being done on our with our tools. And number of employees? Uh, 192 uh plus roughly 1300 independent consultants nice so you really built an ecosystem across several different uh, uh let's say countries yes uh, yeah we did so are you personally and let's say what's in interesting to me let's say that you managed to always finance it uh let's say by yourself until the IPO, let's say, but also the IPO is an let's say, entrepreneurial project. So you always manage to turn this uh, deficiency of capital in some kind of opportunity restructure business uh, in, in this way and so on. Are you now, let's say, are you happy with the size or you still have like big plans for uh, the Data Lab group? There were big plans for Data Lab group, uh, regardless of my position towards it. I, I definitely two years ago I wanted to, to basically to retire, and um, that's why we we were thinking about uh, selling the company. Um, now I think that there is value that I can still provide to the company, and that there are ideas that that the company might be might find extremely profitable. So we have. We have a huge appetite for growth. How did we manage to keep us self-financed? 
Uh, well, first and foremost, um, I come from Gorienska. You be in Slovenia, you know that that means that you're worse than a Jew that was expelled from Scotland for being too spending. Yeah, we 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 try to handle the money um, proficiently. I I don't think I ever bought a new car. If that's something that might resonate vis-a-vis other entrepreneurs that usually would go um, open a company and get, go to buy go to a leasing company for to buy a car. Also, offices have been very prudent. We basically reinvested every euro that we had back to code. Yeah, right. Very little frugality. What we were missing then, uh, we kept. We were also able to secure some bank loans then for the first uh, growth phase into two, four, five, and. Uh, for the last, I would say, five years, we have absolutely no problem fi- finding uh, credit lines. But having a AAA rating also helps there. Yeah, this is much easier later in the company life. We definitely don't have time today to go through this uh, line of uh, questions or to explore, let's say, how to scale a company and make it more independent from the entrepreneur. It's something I would like to have you back. Uh, at some later time but maybe for the end let's say the last question i know that you also had the experience of a spin-off with an investor Uh, but let's say to somebody starting a company today what would you your advice be go uh, bootstrap the company or go find some capital some vc uh, let's say seed investment and grow the company this way definitely not the later I have seen too many companies wasting or their life, uh, wasting the majority of their energy and, and, and resources on chasing VC capital. Our way is completely the opposite. And um, maybe that's why I think it's uh, something that I would recommend uh, to the entrepreneur. Build your business. If you cannot leave off your business, then there's something wrong and nobody's going to invest into you. Especially coming from smaller markets. And I think the, the Germany is a smaller market <laughs> in, 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 in the world scale. So coming from a smaller market, the willingness of investors to you know spend crazy billions until you get your position when you start earning is not something that... I have met in the world. It's it's you don't see venture capitalists coming to, to Eastern Europe or to Europe and saying, okay, let's here's a billion dollar, let's uh, outspend, out advertise every competition and 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 build the this company by the muscles. Uh, it will not happen. Uh, sorry, friends and colleagues, it this will not happen. Uh, for any VC, you spend a, a lot of time and a lot of your thinking time will be spent on thinking about how to make the investor or the pros- pr- prospectus happy, not about making your clients happy. Uh, for the first three to five years, I would have the companies working on their product 
uh, bootstrapping this with uh, friend and family money that some EU funds and stuff like that, which are much easier to get to than, than, uh, than a VC and the sums are roughly the same, what you could do in, I'd say, first or third year. Um, and, and leave that financing things for the days when your product is going to be recognized, when your uh, product is going to be pushed by the clients and advertised by the clients because of the value that it brings. So to sum up, you think that, uh, let's say, selling your way to finance your business, uh, let's say, so selling the product actually shortens the feedback loop uh, between you yeah. and the client. Yeah. yeah. It also prepares you, you, you will be much more prepared to, to deal with a VC or with an investor if you, if you did that groundwork, if you did that 10,000 hours uh, in your product. Then you know what the market is, what the market feedbacks are. You know your clients and you will have that deep understanding, self-confidence and knowledge so that you will be able to to present to an investor without that investors somehow they smell your capacity and the more you know about your product the better you are uh, dealing with the investors so you're not opposed to investors but just at the later stage of the yes. company yeah mm -hmm. okay andre thank you for our conversation today and thanks to all the listeners who stayed with us till the end uh, and I really hope I will have you back on the podcast to discuss organization and challenges with scaling organizations sometimes in the future. Thanks, uh, Uras, for the invite. Thanks to all our listeners for listening and happy to be back. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And do not forget to tell your friends about it. I'd really appreciate if you tell me which entrepreneur would you like me to interview next. Just email me at podcast at bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. The episode show notes are available on www.bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. See you next week.